Please open your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. You'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text in the back of the notes. Um, and we're working our way through Jesus' encounter with the woman at well, with the Samaritans, in the village, the city of Sychar. And this is our fourth week. We will have one more, God willing, because it's such a beautiful, instructive, and compelling passage. Um, so in our first week, we mostly considered the background of Samaria, why the Jews might despise them, and we considered that the Samaritans, from their inception as the northern kingdom, are an unceasing, unbroken, um, unrelenting series of faithlessness, wickedness, idolatry, false worship, culminating in their exile. And then intermarrying with the pagans, trying to take their pagan religion and mixing it with some um, truncated version of Old Testament religion, keeping the books of Moses, hindering the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. I know it's an ancient, an old animosity between these two peoples. And yet Jesus um, deans, bows down, humbles himself to reach out in peace and kindness, not just to a Samaritan but to a Samaritan woman, and not just a Samaritan woman, but a five times divorced, living immorally woman. Um, and, and he breaks those taboos. He reaches out to her. He asks her for a drink of water. She's shocked by this. He quickly turns the conversation to spiritual things, telling her that if she knew who he was and the gift of God, she would be asking him. He pursues her in the conversation, even as she changes the topic to some degree, and ultimately reveals his messiahship to her, an absolute amazing act of humility and grace. And we saw that last week. The text this morning picks up with the disciples' return. I'd like to read verses 27, and I'd like to read through the end of this section, um, chapter 4, 27 through um, 42. <clears throat> Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there were yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. But here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town be believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior 
of the world. Lord God, um, this is indeed the Savior of the world. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might grasp this glorious truth, but also give us eyes to see that we might look up and behold the harvest that is prepared, the fields that are white even where we are. We might be attentive to accomplishing your will, gaining fruit for eternal life. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I read as far as I did, even though we won't look at the Samaritan town's interaction with Jesus till next week, because I really do think that the culmination of this passage is verse 42, the confession found on the lips of the Samaritan village. We know this is indeed the savior of the world. John's gospel has made strong declarations about who Jesus is, starting with John, the gospel writer, the true light, the Savior, who is God. Then on the lips of John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then on the lips of the original disciples, we found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets spoke. Jesus in the encounter with Nicodemus, the the only begotten Son of God, the unique Son of God. Well, here on the lips of Samaritans, we get the next great Christological confession. This is the Savior of the world. So as far as John's gospel's purpose, remember he wrote these things that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing of life in his name, I think the most central point of this passage is to get to this confession. Here are some foreigners, some non-Jewish people or half-Jewish people, and look at the confession they have. They spend just two days with Jesus. They're convinced. They're finding him compelling Um, As a secondary purpose, we see Jesus' humility, his love, his meekness, his gentleness in pursuing and and winning to faith this woman at the well. And so we've we've sat on the sidelines and watched his compassion, his love. Our passage this morning is, is Jesus' instruction to the disciples, his exhortation to the disciples primarily. And it's sandwiched in between the Samaritans leaving their town, to come to see Jesus, and the Samaritans arriving. I want want you to see how John masterfully sets this up. After we we read about how the the woman leaves and the disciples arrive, verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. That's good narrative description. Something's happening. So everything we're about to read, Jesus talking to the disciples, what's happening in the background? A large group of Samaritans are coming to Jesus. And then after Jesus finishes speaking... We get verse 39, picking back up again. Many Samaritans from the town believed. So the Samaritans leaving the town, coming to Jesus, and then picking up the action with the Samaritans, sandwiched in between this is Jesus' exhortation, his instruction, his teaching to his disciples. And I think John's purpose also to us. And if you want to summarize it simply, it would be that that we need to see, to look, to behold, to lift our eyes up and see The fields are white for harvest. We'll see it first in in the instance with Jesus and his disciples, and then we'll consider what that may mean for us. But first, verses 27 to 30, the disciples return and the woman departs. It's kind of a transitionary paragraph. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
They went out of the town and were coming to him. The disciples return and the woman departs. Now that just then marks what Jesus has just said. Another high point in this text, Jesus' first clear declaration unambiguously, I who speak to him, he, I'm the Messiah, Jesus says. And just then, just at that critical high point, the disciples show up. And they are amazed. We see first the disciples' amazement and unasked questions. The disciples' amazement and unasked questions. Now, the disciples have already been stretched, presumably. Jesus sent them into the town, a Samaritan town, to buy food. And we know from some of the more cautious Jewish minds, they wouldn't even want to go near the Samaritans, lest they become unclean, lest they get tainted. We know that Jews would sometimes go as many as 40 miles out of their way to avoid walking through Samaria, lest they get the dust of Samaria on them and become defiled. So buying food that Samaritan hands have touched, bread that Samaritan hands have baked, that I'm sure is stretching. That's stretching already to them. This is challenging. But as challenged as they are, they are still challenged when their rabbi, when their leader is talking to a woman at the well. They're amazed. Now, thankfully, they're smart enough to keep quiet. That's not always the case. Peter most commonly just puts his foot in his mouth. But here, they return. Jesus has just revealed this truth to this woman, and we're told they marveled that he was talking with a woman. And then John gives us an insight into the types of questions they're asking. And so there's two of them, right? What do you seek, and why are you talking with her? Why, why does John include that? I think, in part, because he's expecting the reader might have an answer. Um, particularly that word, seek. Where have we seen seek in this passage earlier? Well, we saw seek earlier in this passage when Jesus said in verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit. No, sorry. Verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And so the disciples don't know what's going on. They're clues, but the attentive reader, you and I, I think can answer the question, what do you seek? Jesus is seeking true worshipers. That's what he's seeking. He's carrying out his Father's will. And so we read and go, I know what he's seeking. I know what he's up to. The Father is seeking true worshipers, and Jesus is carrying out his Father's will. That's going to be his answer in a few moments. So what do you seek? He's seeking true worshipers. Why are you talking with her? To accomplish the Father's will. So they, they don't have a clue. This sets, I think, the table for us understanding the miscommunication and confusion to come. They don't see this as ministry opportunity. They don't understand what, are, what possible reason would he have to talk with her? What are they talking about? What does, he, what does he need directions? What does he, what does he need? They, they're, not, they're not understanding what's going on. They're clueless. That's, that's the point. They're amazed, and their unasked questions indicate their ignorance. Now, in contrast to that, this woman who previously has misunderstood Jesus, when Jesus offered her living water, and she thought he meant magic water, now this woman, notice her zeal and her witness, her zeal and her witness. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Her zeal and her witness. First notice, she has newfound priorities. She's got a, presumably a large vessel of water for water carrying, clay, a day's worth of water. She's lugged it out in the hot 
day. She's already indicated this is arduous. She wants the magic water so that she won't have to come all the way out here again. She leaves it. Something more important is on her mind. Um, she has new priorities, new concerns. It reminds me in, in some respects of the parable Jesus told in, in, in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. But so her priorities, first her lack of interest in what she was previously concerned about. And now, if I'm right in guessing that the reason she came out to the well in the heat of the day at high noon is because she may be viewed as a social pariah, she may want to avoid the company of the people in town with her. Now she goes and seeks them out. And she speaks about the man she met, and she speaks about her own past, which we know from interaction with Jesus is a touchy subject she'd rather like to avoid. She's not avoiding it now. She then witnesses to the whole town, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. That's a bit hyperbolic. Jesus didn't, as far as you can tell, unless there's more going on here, more said that isn't recorded, doesn't tell her everything she did, but it does give us some insight into how significant her five marriages, her current cohabitation are to her. That Jesus names that, and this is one of the most centrally defining things for her. She can say, he told me all that I ever did. At the very least, he hit on the most significant in her mind issues, her greatest sin and shame, her greatest um, embarrassing truth. And so rather than hiding this as she was trying to sidestep with Jesus, remember he said, call your husband. I, I don't have a husband. Well, technically that's true. You've had five. And the man you're having now is not your husband. Now she speaks about it openly. He told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ. This also reinforces something John taught us all the way back at the end of chapter two. Turn back to the end of chapter two. Um, John has been reinforcing various themes in the gospel. Now, just to highlight to you a couple of them. Remember at the end of chapter two, Jesus doesn't entrust himself to the Jews who believed in him. And then verse 24, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. Why? For he himself knew what was in man. And here's another indication of Jesus' supernatural knowledge. Jesus knows what's in man and woman. He knew what was inside of Nicodemus. He knows this woman. So we've seen, even he knew about Nathaniel under the tree. And so that's being highlighted. And remember again that the Samaritans, from what we can tell with this woman, are expecting not a conquering Messiah, but a teaching Messiah. So the significance of this one who's coming, knowing everything she did, having information, would link in directly with their expectations of the prophet like Moses, whom the Lord will raise up, and it's to him you shall listen, because God would put his word in his mouth. So when this woman links this to Jesus, why might him knowing everything about her be significant because they're looking for a Messiah who's going to come and teach and explain all things, whose God is going to put his word in his mouth. So it's directly pertinent. Now it's possible, based on how strong of her confession here, that she's confessing Jesus and just timidly saying it. I think the construction of the Greek sentence leaves it open. I, I tend to think she's still undecided, or at the very least, she's coming to a conclusion. 
Uh, I, I take it on the face. It's, it's possible she's already concluded Jesus is the Messiah, and she's saying this simply out of shyness or, or, or holding back. But regardless, I believe she comes to faith. I, I tend to take it as it's written, that she is, the penny's dropping, she's doing the math. Could this be the Messiah? But the significance for us is even that question, this might be the Messiah, is of such great importance that she leaves her water at the well and she goes and invites the community to come join her in evaluating and sizing up Jesus. This is her top priority. And, and that's right. N- nothing is more important than figuring out who Jesus is and what you make of him. Nothing is of greater significance. And so good for this woman that she gets. Nothing in her daily routine is more important than this. She leaves her water at the well. She goes into town. She calls out the people that I'm guessing she was previously avoiding. And then she points to Jesus' knowledge of her corrupt past, which is something we've seen her try to sidestep. There's already a change of heart at work in her that we can see evidence of that. And then the result of her witness is the townspeople are going out to see Jesus which is, again, the third or fourth time in this gospel that's happened where someone's called people and someone else comes to Jesus, starting with John the Baptist, pointing, behold, the Lamb of God. Two disciples go to Jesus. Where are you staying? Come and see. Peter's brother calls him in, and on and on it goes. The, the, the line that we have of people coming to faith in Jesus most commonly, as far as I can tell, most commonly, at least in people I know, is others who've met Jesus, come to faith in Jesus, telling their friends. Yes, some get saved at big evangelistic rallies. Some get saved at church. But one of the more common means that the Lord uses to bring people to faith, and we've seen in this gospel, a simple person-to-person witnessing and testimony. That's what's been highlighted here. Yes, we, we know John the Baptist was preaching and baptizing. Yes, we know Jesus was preaching and baptizing. And all Jerusalem is going out to him. But the only things we've seen close in this gospel are personal witnessings. John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God. Then two disciples pick up on that and they go and talk to Jesus. And then Jesus' disciples, one by one, going and gathering other people. And so what John is highlighting to us here is the significance of a single witness, a single person in their community, in their household, in their neighborhood, speaking up. Also notice it doesn't matter if they have standing. Frequently... We are looking for the, the famous person to be a witness. If only this pro basketball player, this actor, this politician would say something, people would listen. God is pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to raise up the least righteous person in the community. I would guess the most despised, the most problematic in the Samaritan community. And on her witness... And on her testimony, a town comes to faith in Jesus. That's remarkable. It pleases God through the folly of the message preached to bring to faith those who will become his sheep and just marvel at the goodness and the glory of God. He didn't find the smartest. We, Jesus just talked to the smartest, most educated, most godly ruler, and he shut him down. And here, this woman becomes the the advertisement, this woman becomes the evangelist for her town. <laughs> it's amazing. 
Point two then, Jesus' disciples must be prepared for the harvest. So that's the, that's the transition. And now everything that Jesus says and the entire discussion between Jesus and his disciples is taking place while the Samaritans are coming. John frames it. If this were in camera, you'd be seeing a group of people getting closer while Jesus is talking. Notice how he frames it. Meanwhile, so the, the people are coming out and, and presumably they're still moving. And as they're moving, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him. So this entire discourse between Jesus and his disciples is taking place while the Samaritans are showing up, while they're coming, while they're getting closer. That's important in the text. And the, as soon as Jesus is done talking, the disciples are going to drop out of the text, and we're just going to look at the Samaritans and Jesus and their interaction with each other. So now we get some principles. Now we get some instruction. I've, I've resisted the urge of modeling evangelism after what Jesus does to the woman of the well. You, you can do that, and I've heard people do that, eight tips for evangelism. Rather, up to this point, I've wanted to marvel, to just worship, to sit and just, wow, what a savior. But now, the, the instruction, the exhortation, the charge to witness and be alert and ready for witness is exactly what happens. We've seen Jesus do it. Now he's going to exhort and instruct his disciples to follow after him. And if we are his disciples, for us to follow after him as well. And simply put, that Jesus' disciples must be prepared for the harvest. Jesus' disciples must be prepared for the harvest. Let's begin reading uh, verses 31 to 34. Meanwhile, the disciples are urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So what we see in Jesus, and then likewise following his disciples, is they too must find strength in doing his Father's will. They too must find strength in doing his Father's will. Now we're told plainly by John that Jesus is exhausted. When he gets to the well, he is exhausted. He's been walking on foot from southern, down and bound by Jerusalem, heading up to Galilee up north, probably 10, 20 miles. It's noon, it's the Middle East. He's thirsty, he's exhausted, he's tired. If ever there were a reason to avoid considering evangelism, to avoid considering spiritual things. Jesus has got good reasons. Let me get something to drink. Let me catch my breath. Let me have something to eat. Let me take a power nap. Then I'll be all there. And Jesus is so attentive to his Father's will that he never misses an opportunity. He never misses fruit to be harvested. And his disciples, knowing he's hungry, presumably they went into town to get him food. Jesus may well be evidencing fatigue. They're urging him to eat. And, and he, he won't have any of it. Why? We know why. There's a group of people coming to him. He, he's now got his attention on them and the ministry at hand with them. Now, it's not that to put the food away. There's good people. They're going to be here any minute. That's, I think, the, the logic. He says to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? This is a long line, and you'll see this in John's gospel repeatedly, of people misunderstanding Jesus, whether it's destroy this temple and in two days I'll raise it up, and they think he's talking about Herod's temple, whether it's Nicodemus, you must be born again, and he's confused whether it's the woman at the well 
Um, if, you, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who was talking to you, you'd ask and he'd give you living water and she wants magic water. Well, here again, he's speaking, making a pretty direct reference, I think, to Deuteronomy 8, and, and the disciples, whew, they miss it. The disciples offer him food and misunderstand. Now, what Jesus is referencing almost certainly is Deuteronomy 8, 3. Jesus quotes this on other occasions when, when Satan tempts him in the wilderness. This is what Jesus quotes. And Moses writes that the Lord humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. As hungry as Jesus was, as thirsty as he was, when he sees ministry and work for him to do that his father would have him accomplish, he finds greater strength and sustenance in doing that than in getting a drink or eating food. Because Jesus is intent on finishing or completing his father's work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish, that's, that's the word to complete or finish, to accomplish his work. That's a remarkable statement. This is a mark of a, of a true disciple of Jesus and, and of his disciples as well. That You understand that with the Holy Spirit indwelling you, as you yield and submit yourself to the will of God, as you obey, you will be strengthened. As Isaiah said, you will not grow weary. You'll, be, you'll rise up on eagles' wings. That God promises to strengthen and uphold us. So what we might think is an excuse, I'm too tired, I'm too exhausted, Jesus says, no, doing, obeying, submitting to the Father's will is precisely where he gets strength and sustenance. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's his food. Secondarily, it's bread and water. But first of all, it's obedience and fulfilling God's work. Jesus is intent on finishing his Father's work, which is another theme in John's Gospel. Next chapter, in chapter 5, will center on this issue, but John 5, 36, the testimony I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Turn to John 17. John 17 is, is Jesus' prayer in the garden. He prays for himself first, then he prays for the disciples, and then he prays for you and I and the rest of his scattered flock. I just want to look at the part where he prays for himself. John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. This is that hour he's talking about the woman. This is the hour he's talking about with his mother. This is the hour that continually is spoken of in John's gospel. It's now here. The cross is looming over him. Glorify your son, and the son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have um, all whom you have given him. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is going to be able to say on the night of the crucifixion, I have accomplished, I've done, I've completed all the work you gave me to do. How did Jesus manage to do that? Because he was always observant and attentive to the Father's will. 
Jesus can make this claim precisely because when he's exhausted and thirsty at high noon in Samaria, he's still on mission. That's, that's why he can, he can say this. Because he doesn't take a day off. Because he doesn't clock out. Because he is attentive to do his Father's will. It's, it's, it's I hope and desire to accomplish as much of what God has for me as, as I can. I, I don't think I'll be able to claim what Jesus claims. I don't think you'll be able to claim what Jesus does. But who doesn't want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? We, we get a mark of how that's done here with Jesus' zeal and attentiveness for ministry. He, he, he doesn't check out. He's exhausted. He's thirsty. He's tired. He's in a strange place. And he spots and he sees opportunity to do his Father's will and he finds more strength, more energy, more invigoration in doing that will than he does in eating food. And now as as he's finished talking to the woman and she's gone into town, the disciples are trying to ply him with food, he sees the Samaritans coming and there's still more ministry to do and he's still finding more energy and sustenance in that than he is in having lunch. Amazing. And I think that is to give us a model as well that we would find strength. There's, there's a strengthening that God promises as we submit and obey his word. And there are days where I'm tired, and I'm sure there are days where you're tired and you're weary, and, and we need to trust what Paul says, do not grow weary in doing good. And, and okay, Lord, if you've got this work, this ministry for me, then you're gonna have to give the strength, which is exactly what he promises to do. Exactly what he promises to do. So, they too, we too, must find strength in doing the Father's will. And we see that Jesus is intent on finishing his Father's work. Point B, what else does Jesus say to his disciples about the harvest? They must be alert and prepared for immediate action. They must be alert and prepared for immediate action. Verse 35, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. What's, what's the point going on here? Well, I think the contrast is with a delay and immediacy. You say, yet four months. Harvest is four months off. Four months is a quarter of a year. Or a third of a year, sorry. Third of a year. Yes. Okay, I got my math. <laughs> Hold on. Um, it's a third of a year. And that makes sense. You plant, you go out and you plow and you plant, and then you wait. Jesus has another parable to that effect in Matthew 4. The kingdom of God is like a man who scattered seed on the ground, and he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts. It takes time. He, he's done what he can do up front. Now, hopefully it's going to rain, and, but there's nothing he can do until there's a crop to bring in. There's, there's, in other words, there's a delay between the planting and the reaping. About four months and so as I'm trying to read into this, what I'm proposing is if the disciples we already know are not ministry-minded, they don't, why on earth would Jesus be talking to her? What they don't think is, of course, he's, he's, the, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's talking to her about spiritual things. He's doing the types of things he did when we were baptizing back in Judea. They don't think that. They just, why, why would he, what does he want? Does he need something? What's going on? It's completely off their radar. I'm proposing to some extent, they, they think they're on a break. They, they think ministry time is not now. So they think in this metaphor, they're in that four month period. We did some work when we were baptizing. We planted some seeds. We call people to repentance. We 
pointed to Christ. Now we're moving up to Galilee. Presumably when we get to Galilee, it'll be time for some more ministry. Something like that. And Jesus' correction is, rather than four months to the harvest, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. There's no, there's no delay, it's now. And the challenge for us is to think, again, that we've got times off, time on, and that we can predict, you know, we're going to have a revival here planned for two weeks from now. It doesn't work like that. It, it does not work like that. They must be alert and prepared for immediate action. And Jesus told parables about this, didn't he? Servants whose master is going to come home at a late hour, and some of them are alert and ready, and some of them go to sleep, get drunk, beat the slaves. We are the Lord's slaves and servants, and we need to be ready at a moment's notice for him to call on us to do work and ministry. Yes, he'll lead us into times of rest and times of, of refreshment, but we need to be alert enough. Our eyes need to be lifted up. We need to be looking to behold what time it is. Is it time to harvest or is it time to take a nap? There are, there are times to take a nap. The challenge here is not how dare you take a rest. It's the Lord who instituted the Sabbath. Rather, be alert, be vigilant. Lift your eyes up and see that there's a harvest. So given the context that this is all taking place with the Samaritans coming to him, I can only picture that Jesus in saying lifting your eyes up is actually pointing to the Samaritans themselves. The, the harvest is the Samaritans who are approaching, most likely wearing white or light clothing because it doesn't absorb as much heat. And so this isn't purely metaphoric. John's told us a crowd of people from the town are coming out. This is taking place while Jesus is speaking. And, and the disciples don't have these Samaritans on their radar. And Jesus does. And Jesus has just talked to this woman. He's planted. She's gone off. That seed is spreading. And now they're coming and he sees it's time to harvest and they still don't get it. And he says, look, you think there's four months, whatever you want to make of that. You think there's time. And I'm telling you, if you'd lift your eyes up now and look and see, now is the time for the harvest. Now is the harvest time. It's not that you and I need to be witnessing everywhere we go all the time. You and I need to be alert and ready for those opportunities to speak the words of life. We're being faithless if it's not even on our radar. And I'll be honest, there are, there are whole days that pass by where I, where I don't consider the people I'm interacting with. That's just a gas station attendant getting me gas. That's just a supermarket checkout person checking out my food. The disciples seem to have some sense like that. They've, they've interacted with these people. The people who are coming out to them are the very people they were in town buying food from. And yet apparently they never considered that the ministry they were doing in Judea, baptizing, calling people to repentance, had anything to do with these people, presumably, because they don't understand why would Jesus be talking to her? And so Jesus tells them, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. The challenge is to be faithful with God's will in front of us. The challenge is to pray and be alert. Lord, where, where would you have me speak today? Where would you have me reap a crop? Where would you have me plant a seed? If you're alert and vigilant, I trust God will give you the wisdom to know. It's not saying everywhere you go, you have to hand out a tract to everybody. You need to be ready. I need to be ready. I need to be alert to act when I'm tired, when I'm hungry, when I'm grumpy, when I didn't get much sleep, when I don't feel good, doesn't matter because 
obeying our Father and doing His will gives greater strength and support than food does. And we need to be ready and on mission. It's convicting and challenging, but that's what Jesus is saying. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are ripe for harvest. His disciples did not consider this approaching group of Samaritans as a, as a crop for harvest, and Jesus does. Point C, they must not delay in getting to work. They must not delay in getting to work. Verses 36 and 37. Already the one who reaps this receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Point C, they must not delay in getting to work. First truth, Jesus reports to them, not get started harvesting, but the harvest has already begun. The harvest has begun and is already being rewarded. When do employers pay their employees? Before or after they do work? After, right? So Jesus' statement is to indicate it's underway. You're, it's not on your radar. You're not on mission. You've taken a, you've taken a, you've clocked out for some time, but the one who reaps is already receiving wages, presumably because he's already brought some level of crop back in. Now, perhaps he's referring to himself. Perhaps he's referring to the ministry of John the Baptist. But what's, what he's telling them is, look, guys, it, it's already happening around you. Reaping is taking place. You're, you're, you're out of step. You're late. Get to work. The, 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 the whistle of start of shift Blue, 10 minutes ago. That's what he's saying. The harvest has already begun and is being rewarded. And then we get told explicitly, what is that harvest? The harvest is the salvation of men. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Ecclesi- I mean, sorry, not Ecclesiastes. Proverbs 11.30 says this, the fruit of righteousness is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. Paul, speaking about his um, church planning ministry, says in Romans 1.13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, and thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So it's an agricultural metaphor of harvesting a crop, but Make, make no mistake that the crop is eternal life. It's salvation. And it's God's crop. But you can bring in a particular bag of grain. You can gather some of the apples here. If you want to, I'm switching my metaphors around with different types of fruit. But the point is you and I can have the privilege and the honor of bringing in some of that harvest. I mean, what, what more important work can there be to do and so Jesus is indicating to them that the work's already going on. The shift's already started. Get to work. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. In this, the harvester and the sower rejoice. In this, the harvester and the sower rejoice. We've already seen John the Baptist joy at Jesus. And what Jesus is getting at is there's a cooperative, coordinated effort uh, it's not any one person doing the whole thing, doing the sowing 
and the waiting and the reaping. Rather, all sorts of people are involved in sowing and reaping and rejoicing together, doing this labor in concert together with joy. Point D, they must understand their role in God's plan of salvation. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. These are the disciples, and as great as the disciples are, all I can say is they're co-workers, co-laborers, co-harvesters. It's a cooperative and group harvest. It's a cooperative and group harvest. Lord's got many workers in his field. And by implication, I think John putting this here, we can enter into that work as well. We can take part along with the apostles. I mean, who who are some of the ones who've already labored? Well, Moses, for one, who wrote the Pentateuch. The prophets that God sent to the northern kingdom. Most recently, John the Baptist, we knew he was in this area baptizing. That may even explain, in part, how the Samaritan town has some messianic expectation. We talked last week about... The, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, don't have a clearly defined Messiah who's coming. They have a person, the seed of the woman, and they have the prophet like Moses, but it's not clear how they got anointed one from the Pentateuch. That seems to be clarified more in the latter prophets. Perhaps John the Baptist's ministry might account for that. Someone else has planted and watered. Someone else has labored. Even Jesus, for all he's doing, is not starting from scratch. This woman knows Messiah is coming and will tell us everything when he comes. Jesus is building upon the work of others, even as he ministers to this woman. It's a cooperative and group harvest. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter three. Paul uses a, a nearly identical word picture here, describing his current ministry and Apollos' current ministry. And, and the reason I turn here is to say, I think this picture is true, not just in Jesus' day and with the apostles, but it's true with us. First Corinthians three, five. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. What Paul is saying is he came through Corinth and he was the missionary church planter. He preached the gospel. He evangelized. He spoke the word of life the word of God to them, and God gave growth. And then, after he departed, Apollos is ministering to the church of Corinth, teaching, building up, edifying the saints. And God gave the growth. One waters, one plants, God gives the growth. But notice the, the co-language again. We, he who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. Paul is also highlighting the the corporate group nature of this endeavor. God alone makes things grow. 
And we're working together in this project. Back to John 4, before we sing our closing song. And, and here's the final point for them. They must faithfully enter into the work of others. And, and so must we. And there's a tremendous privilege for us here and a tremendous responsibility. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Other people, John the Baptist, the former prophets, who knows what other people the Lord had, have labored. And what Jesus is telling them to do is get in there and finish the work or work on finishing the work. You're not in this alone. You are standing in the front of a long line of witnesses. But think of the privilege. You and I get to work. We can join in the work that was begun in the garden that Moses labored in, that Joshua labored in, that David labored in, that Jesus labored in, that the apostles labored in. All of their work is still bearing fruit today. And the picture is disciples need to enter into that work and continue carrying it on. And once I think of that privilege, you and I, if we will engage in this, if we will have a vision for the saving of souls, the preaching of the gospel, if we will consider and receive that, we're standing shoulder to shoulders with Paul, John, Luke, Moses, Jesus, working in God's field. I sent you to reap that for she did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And the text ends here with the disciples. They don't show up again until chapter six. They drop out. They drop out explicitly. And I think there's an implied question for the reader as well. Will we enter into that labor? This is what God is doing. Why has God delayed returning for 2,000 years? We know in part from Peter that he's doing it, that more might come to salvation. The Lord is not slow regarding his promises, but faithful, desiring that none should perish. And so God is delaying his return so that more of the harvest can be brought in. And if you're a Christian, then you are one of those co-workers. And there's a long, long line of faithful witnesses and workers behind you, and they've passed the baton to you. The question is, will you receive it? Or will you be too busy and distracted? I, I tend to think, Dietrich Bonhoeffer got it right, that in this regard, most of us don't rebel and refuse and say no. We just get distracted. We, we, we got legitimate things to be distracted about. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I got a test next week. I, I, got, a, I got a problem at work. Whatever you want to throw it in. And Jesus gives us the model here that he's exhausted and he's thirsty and he's still got his eye on the prize. He's still got his head in the game. He's still alert to what God is doing. So those aren't valid excuses for us. We have the immense privilege of entering into the labors of all those who have gone before, of reaping a harvest. In eternity, the good sermon that I preached isn't going to ring for eternity. Into eternity, those that I had a, a small role in helping come to faith, that's, those are the events that are going to ring forever. Those to whom you've encouraged, to whom you've brought the words of life, to whom you've brought the Messiah, come and see. I think I found the Christ. That and events like that 
are what will ring for eternity. In, in three million years, you're not going to be still very satisfied with the presentation you did at the job. You're not. Three million years now, I think you will be satisfied with the harvest that you were able to bring in. I think you'll find joy in that. C.S. Lewis has a quote um, that I find helpful. We, we get distracted by things that we think are important. World events. Russia's invaded the Ukraine. I mean, that's significant. Your job, your health. All of that pales into comparison with the image bearers of God you bump elbows with, I bump elbows with every day. Listen to C.S. Lewis's quote from his essay, The Way to Glory. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. Nations and civilizations and cultures, life compared to our life is, is that of a gnat. Why? Because you and I will never not be. The USA will not be. Soviet Union will not be. The Ukraine will not be. On and on and on. Babylon is not. But you and I will never cease to not be, nor anyone you've ever met. The life expectancy of nations and civilizations is to ours as the life of a gnat. It is immortals with whom we joke, work, marry, snub, exploit, immortal horrors, or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, superiority, no presumption. You've never met a mere person. Every person you've ever met, the cashier at the gas station, will one day, and another quote Lewis gives, be raised to such a level of glory that you'd be tempted to worship them or such an object of horror and pity that you would weep and gnash your teeth. That's every human being is headed to one of those destinations. And so Jesus gently, I believe, rebukes and instructs his disciples. That he sent them into the town. I mean, that, that's the real irony here. He sent them to the mission field and right over their head. They completely missed it. And now, even as the mission field is coming to them, he's got to tell them, look up, lift up your eyes. See, the fields are white for harvest. That's the heart of our God, seeking true worshipers. And he would have it be our heart as well. Please stand as we prepare to sing our closing song.